Normally we preach through books of the Bible. Uh, this is a one-off sermon. Uh, for the next following four weeks, we're actually going to do a short thematic series on the Trinity over the following four weeks. And then when we get to February, uh, we will continue where we left off, uh, working our way through the book of Acts. But I thought, New Year's. Everyone's thinking about New Year's resolutions, new beginnings. The Bible's got a fair bit to say about new beginnings, so this is the passage we're going to look at this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do give us opportunity for new beginnings. God, we thank you that even though we mess up so many things in life, We've dishonoured the one who's created us and given us all good things. Yet your desire is to save and to reconcile and to transform us to become more like your son Jesus. So Lord, wherever we're at this morning with regards to Jesus, whether we're sussing him out or whether we've come to know him dearly, we pray that your word might be an encouragement, a comfort and a challenge to us this morning. Work in me and all of us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We all know what's going to happen tomorrow night, don't we? People are going to party too hard. They're going to make unrealistic resolutions, things that they hope to achieve in 2019, whether it's going to be taking on a new hobby, getting healthier, getting fitter, doing something completely different, And it seems really funny to me, even though it's not a bad thing to take time to reflect upon your life and think about what could be different, it's a little bit odd, isn't it, that we kind of assign that to one day of the year that we think, this is the day when we make change. Unless, of course, your resolution has to do with health or diet, in which case you aim for January 1st and then you aim for every successive Monday after that till eventually it either happens or you give up. But why do we think change is only available on certain days. New Year's Day, Mondays. Because in the Bible reading that we've just had, it's been abundantly clear when a person comes to Christ, they are changed dramatically. They are not the same. And that change can happen anytime. It can happen on a Tuesday Arvo. It can happen on the 29th of February in a leap year. But unlike some of the resolutions that people may be making tomorrow night, following Jesus isn't a fad. Like if you've got a health resolution where you think, I just might drop a few kilos, and then once I get there, everything's good. Following Jesus isn't just about dropping a few bad habits until I get to a good level that I'm okay and comfortable with. It's an all-of-life, forever commitment and transformation where we receive a new identity, gives us a whole new outlook in life, a whole new direction, a whole new purpose, whole new relationships. When you look at the way the Bible speaks about our life before Jesus and afterwards, it always uses such contrasting, polarising terms like darkness and light, death and life. There's nothing minor. There's nothing just by way of improvement in this hawk. And Paul, who writes this letter to the church in Corinth, is a prime example of what that looks like. This was a man who wanted to wipe the church off the face of the earth. 
he hated this claim that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. And he was persecuting and killing Christians, putting them in the prison, wanting to bring this to nothing. Until he personally encountered Jesus. And he went from the greatest opponent of Jesus to one of the greatest teachers and promoters and builders of the church. So whether you're someone who's presently following Jesus, here's a time to reflect upon that new creation which he has begun in you. Or if you're still sussing out Jesus, who he is, what he's all about, my prayer is you would see what Paul saw that brought a radical transformation in his life and has also done by many others sitting around you this morning. Paul explains a little bit how and why he's made new and what difference that made as we look at this passage. Speaking about being driven by fear and love in verses 11 to 15, our mission we're given to reconcile people to God. And thirdly and fairly, so what? Why does it even matter in any of this stuff that we've just had read? Firstly, the idea of being driven by fear and love, that might sound pretty odd, might not it? Can you be driven by both fear and love? Can those two things even fit together? Are they so polar opposite? But the opposite of love isn't fear. The opposite of love is hate. And in fact, there's actually perfectly harmonious environments and where fear and love can fit perfectly together. Now, as a pastor, often my mind's engaged in, in weighty sort of things, and I like to sometimes just do some really silly, mindless, stupid stuff, just to, just to break the mind off for a little while. I remember there was a time when I was pastoring down in Victoria, I loved watching a TV show called Man vs. Food. It's the dumbest show about a guy who takes on all these food challenges where they're either a massive quantity of food or they're massively spicy just to see if he can do it within a time limit. And it's, it's mindless but entertaining. But one of my favourite ones I got into was a show called Tornado Chasers. This is a guy who's like on, he's like ADHD, he loves tornadoes, he is a meteorologist. And this is the vehicle that they take in and his whole goal of the show is to drive in into a tornado and get video footage and send off drones and stuff to get all sorts of information about it. Now this was a serious vehicle. They would get it there. You can see it's very heavily armoured. It's not like your standard glass. They would drop it to the ground. It had hydraulic pins in the side of it to nail it into the ground so it wouldn't get lifted off. It was a funny show. It was fascinating to watch and the more sensible ones amongst us might be thinking that is just reckless irresponsibility. What sort of idiot would drive into a tornado? Part of me actually likes the idea of it. But there was a healthy balance of fear and love. There was no doubt about the fact that he loved tornadoes. He was all gung-ho all about it. But he didn't just want to drive into any tornado, even with a vehicle like that. He didn't just approach them any old way. There was a healthy fear, not that he was terrified of them. If he was terrified of them, he wouldn't be trying to drive into one. But a healthy respect and awe for the nature and power of a tornado combined with a love for it. And that's how we should understand our opening verse. When Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord... Knowing something of the nature of our God. Something of the power that is there. 
Famously, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. Having a healthy awe and reverence for who our God is allows us to respond rightly and live wisely in light of that. But also, in addition to that, the verse that just came before the part we had read, Paul had said this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So not just his sense of awe of who God is, but he's also driven by every single person who's ever lived will one day stand before Jesus and give an account for every single thing that they've done. And in light of this, Paul says, I persuade others. Now you might be a bit uncomfortable with that word persuade because sometimes it comes across with a negative context. Maybe you've had a salesman persuade you to buy something you didn't need. Maybe they manipulated, maybe they lied. But that's not what Paul is talking about when he's talking about he wants to persuade others. Matter of fact, in the previous chapter, he says, we've completely disregarded underhanded methods. What we do is we give plain statement of the truth. Persuasion is not always a bad thing. Matter of fact, every single decision you will ever make is a result of you weighing up the facts and deciding what you are persuaded is the best course of action. And so Paul is convinced that the message of what God has done in Jesus alone is persuasive enough. You don't need to spice it up. You don't need to make it more attractive. It is persuasive in and of itself. Now, Paul is speaking to a culture there in Corinth that was very all about attracting people to yourself, building a name for yourself, getting, getting lots of followers, being flashy in your words, you use the way you present things. And it appears that some were making claims like that against Paul, saying he's all about show, he's all about external things. And Paul says, God knows my heart. And if you knew my heart, you wouldn't be saying these things either, he says. My heart's not about being a promotion, self-promotion for myself, says Paul. I just want you to see the goodness of what God has done in Jesus. I'm motivated by a love for you, knowing that all of you one day will stand before him. Look at the way Paul describes that in verses 14 and 15. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, the one who has died for all. Therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So formally, out of the fear and respect of God, knowing that all will stand before him, he persuades others. Now he is driven by the love of Christ, which controls and compels him. How has Paul received this love? This love has changed him in such a way, he says, this controls me. He speaks about the manner in which he received that love in the letter to the Galatians, where he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and he gave himself for me. That's hard to think about, isn't it? When you think about Paul as being the greatest persecutor of the church, he says, I've received the love of Christ. This one that I've been opposed loved me and he gave his very own life for me. 
Now, depending on what Bible translation you have in front of you, in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5, you might say, for the love of Christ controls us. Or you might have the love of Christ compels us. You might have the love of Christ constrains us. Because the word can have both a positive meaning in terms of movement towards a particular action, but it can also have meanings of limitation and restriction. The New English Bible, which tries to capture that double meaning, says the love of Christ leaves us no choice. When you have experienced the love of Christ, we have no choice but to share of that love with others, to be moved towards telling other people about that. It makes no sense to receive Christ's love and continue to live for yourself, and as though this life is all that matters. After all, that was what brought us to the trouble we were in, living for ourselves. Rebelling, rejecting God's claim over our life, even though he created us and gave us everything we enjoy. It's the very thing Jesus came to die for. But it wasn't just a feeling of, oh, how nice is it that Jesus has done something that moved him in this direction. It was based upon a sure foundation of things which happened in history. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The death of Jesus Christ, he says, was for all. Now you need to be pretty careful what you say with that statement. That statement does not mean that Jesus, when he died, forgave the sins of every single person in the world, therefore everyone's right in the eyes of God and everyone's going to spend eternity with him. doesn't say that. That's, that would contradict entirely what Jesus said and what all of the biblical authors say. What it does say is that Jesus' death for sin is something which applies to every single one of us because all of us have rebelled against God. All of us have said, I don't need God, I'm going to live my own way. And the benefits of what Jesus did on the cross are available and sufficient for all who would trust in him. There is not a single person who is outside the realms of God's saving grace. There's no one who can say, I've done so many bad things that I don't meet the criteria that I could know Jesus. There's no one who can say, because I live in this country or because I've experienced this or because I had this religious background, because I did this. His death was for all. All who would trust in him will receive the benefits of his death, the forgiveness of our sins, reconciliation to God. But Paul also says, and all who commit to him, who trust him, will not be the same. He died that they may no longer live for themselves, but to live for him. If your concept of being a Christian or being saved meant that at some point in your life you said a prayer, you went down the front of a church service, and you just say, well, I've dealt, covered all bases, I'm sweet with God, I'll just kick on with life the way things are already going... I can say to you on the authority of the word of God, if you have no desire to live for him, you have not been saved by him. 
Paul makes it very clear. He has died that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. Paul, who's driven by awe of God, knowing that all must stand before Jesus, who is changed by the love of Christ that he has received, is compelled and who has persuaded others of what Jesus has done and their need for a saviour. But so often when we read through things that Paul did in the book of Acts, we see thousands come to faith and we think, yay, Paul. But this mission, Paul says, isn't just the apostles' mission. Isn't just Paul's mission. He says it's our mission. And the same power available to Paul is available to those who belong to Christ. Our mission, along with Paul, is to reconcile people to God. Now, people have been making all sorts of claims about Paul based on external, worldly standards. But the truth is, you can only reach a limited conclusion about someone based upon what you see. And then, depending on a person's perspective, what one person considers to be valuable is going to differ from one to the other. Yesterday, I I got a message from a friend of mine that I went to Bible college with. He didn't end up pursuing ministry, but he's, um, he's been studying psychology and all sorts of things, and he's finally about to become a registered clinical psychologist. And he was so excited to show me the, the um, proposed charter of recommended fees to charge for a one-hour session of $251. And if you were judging by worldly standards, if this life was all there is, then you say, that kid's made it. 251 bucks an hour? I said, even I'll have a crack at it for half that price. I didn't really. But this is Paul who is writing this. A man who had major credentials with regards to Judaism. He could have been a big man in the name of the Jewish faith. He says, you know all that stuff? I count that rubbish. I count that nothing for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. So Paul said he's also learnt not to regard others according to worldly or fleshly things. He even confesses he did the same with Jesus. That he saw him as just a man, a blasphemer, a so-called false claiming to be the son of God and a Messiah. Who through Paul's original perception was that he got what he deserved. He died on the cross getting the very curse of God for being a liar and a blasphemer. But when Paul came to encounter Jesus for himself, he came to realise that Jesus wasn't cursed by God as a blasphemer. But on that cross, he bore the curse of our sin on our behalf to reconcile us to God. Now, as a result of being reconciled to God through Christ, Paul can say in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old's passed away and behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Those two things belong together. There is not one without the other. There is no such thing as a Christian or someone who is in Christ who is not a new creation. Often you hear people talk about a born-again Christian and say that's some elite level of serious Christians. But to be a Christian means you have been made new. If you have not been made new, you don't belong to Christ. We are radically reoriented when we come to faith. A new identity, a new worldview, new priorities, new relationships. 
The old is gone. The old part of me that lived entirely for myself, for my gain, that was stuck in guilt and shame, darkness, blind to the things of God, gone. The new has come. I'm now a child of God. In his family, given a new purpose, meaning, rejoicing, giving thanks for his grace and his forgiveness. When it says the old is gone, the new has come, I'd love to tell you that means that all, all of your struggles in life disappear, but that's not true. That's not what it's saying. But how does this new creation happen? Paul says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Our trespasses, that is, our actions and our rebellion, our hostility against God was held against us. We are accountable for our own actions. He says, if we're going to be reconciled, brought into relationship with God, they need to not be held against us. Surely he's not saying that God just kind of like, nah, it doesn't matter. We'd hate the idea of a judge who just says, I'm feeling nice, I'm a lovely guy, I don't care what you've done, we'll just forget about it. We'd think that was a terrible judge. And God doesn't just forget about it either. But instead we read, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That is, Jesus who never sinned made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just read that. For our benefit, God laid on perfect Jesus all of our sin and poured out on him the punishment for our sin on the cross so that we could get the righteousness of God. Every single religion tries to answer that question of how do an imperfect people enter into a relationship with the perfect God? And mostly their explanations are you need to do this, this and this and just hope that's enough to keep him happy. All this from a God who is distant, who would never come into this world. The message of the Christian faith is God has come into our world. And it's not about what you do to appease him, but about what he has done. Therefore, there's no concern about has enough been done because he has done it for us. Every sin we've ever done, every sin we ever will do, every thought we've ever had, Jesus bore that punishment on the cross on our behalf. We read he died for all, not wanting that any would perish, but all would repent and come to trust him. So what? Good question. Otherwise I've just wasted a fair bit of your time. There are two clear implications of the passage and depending on where you presently stand with Jesus, there's there's something to both to those who already are trusting in Jesus and also says some to those who haven't got to that point yet. And I want to start first with those, if you have trusted in Jesus, be reminded that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You are no longer to live for yourself, but to live for him. Now, as you think ahead into thinking about many of your great, wonderful New Year's resolutions, maybe take a time to pause and think about 
What about the change that God has already begun in me? How about I get to know that more deeply this year? You see, so many people, they get into Ancestry.com, they find out what places in the world their, their ancestors have come from because somehow there's a feeling of it gives me a better sense of my identity. If I know that I've come from here, I've come from there. But if you are in Christ, you are a child of God. You are co-heirs with Christ. And not of a distant, dead relative who can't be contacted, of the true and living God who you can be in relationship with that shapes and forms all of who you are. May this year be a year of growing closer to Jesus, finding out more of who you truly are in him. If you're looking for a good book for a holiday read, I'd thoroughly recommend Tim Chester's got a book called Enjoying God, which is a great read, and it's not a big read or a difficult read. But while we're thinking about what is our identity, there's one element of our identity that gets repeated time and time again in this passage. If you are in Christ, you are an ambassador of Christ and you have been given a ministry of reconciliation, of bringing people who are distant from God to God. Now, sometimes we hear things like that and we think, I'm not really gifted that way. Some people are really good at it. I'll leave it up to those. But Paul doesn't say, and he's called some who are really gifted to be ambassadors for Christ. We all are. And there's comfort in the passage because we read that it's God who reconciles us to himself. And not only that, it's the same God who gives us the ministry of reconciliation. He says, you got this. I've given you everything you need for the task that I've given to you. And when he calls us as ambassadors of Christ, note what it says after that. God making his appeal through you. You know how stressed we all get worried about, wonder if the way I explain Jesus to people, whether it will be appealing, whether they'll respond to it. We're called ambassadors of Christ. It says God makes his appeal through you. The appeal of talking to someone as Jesus doesn't rest upon you and your ability but upon God. And for Paul and for all of us, as we have a right fear of God, knowing that all will give an account, and knowing the love which we have received from Christ ourselves, may it compel us, may it compel us with the confidence in God who reconciles and makes his appeal through us. And then secondly, for those who may not have trusted in Jesus yet, there's one very clear implication I've just said that all Christians have been given a ministry to reconcile people to God. And it would totally undermine everything I just said if I didn't plead with you, be reconciled to God. It would undermine my very belief that God makes appeals through ordinary, everyday people. When it says that Christ died for all, it's because all were in need of having their sins dealt with because all of us rebelled against God. Even the nicest person you've ever met is living their own life with complete disrespect for God. And Jesus came to lay down his life, to bear the punishment for that so we can be reconciled to God, have a relationship with the Almighty God and live for eternity with him. That sounds to me a lot like a God who actually wants 
you to be reconciled to him. And he did that knowing everything you've ever done, everything you'll ever do, everything you've ever thought. And you want to know what? He's not waiting for you to clean up your life until you're good enough to come and ask him to be your saviour. You don't have to reach a particular standard before you're worthy enough to come before and say, I'm sorry I've rebelled against you. I'm sorry I've dishonoured you. I need Jesus. I need you to give me this new life because I can't do it. I want to follow you. But that's the love of Jesus. He came into our world, the mess of our world. He calls us to himself while we're in the messy state in which we're in. He came, he identified like us with humanity, lived in the world we lived, suffered and endured the same things that we see on a daily basis and bears our punishment on our behalf. He takes our sin, our guilt, our shame and gives us his righteousness. That is, we are right in his sight that nothing can take that away and also places his presence, his Holy Spirit within us Help us live that new life that he's called us to and we trust in him. Now, if you're finding this message appealing in any sense whatsoever, then I'd encourage you to chat to me or chat to anyone you know who knows Jesus. Because after all, it's not just ministers who are ambassadors and who've got a ministry of reconciling people to God. And it doesn't even need to be New Year's Eve. You can make change on any day of the week. Matter of fact, if you read forward a few verses, it says, now is the day of salvation. And regardless of what day of the year you read that, it's still going to say, now is the day of salvation. Every day is now. God making his appeal through everyday people to reconcile people to himself. So whether it's drawing nearer to the Jesus whom you've already come to know as your saviour, or whether it's coming to know and trust him for the first time, May 2019 be a great year and a great year because of what Jesus has done. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though we totally disregard you at times, we've gone and lived our own way despite the fact that you made us and you gave us all good things to enjoy. yet you entered into the mess of our world not to give us what we deserve but to bear our punishment on our behalf and you call us to be reconciled to you not when we're good enough to be worthy to do so but in the middle of the mess of wherever we're at now God when we come to you you make us a new creation that we may no longer live for ourselves but for you. Help us to to be bold ambassadors for Christ. Transform and shape our thinking that we might live for you and not get caught up in a life lived for ourselves. And thank you that all of this hope is only available in your Son, who you freely gave for us. In Jesus' name, amen.